peddlers from around the world. It's me, John, bringing you another episode of Peddling Podcast. As I journey 20,000 kilometers from New Zealand back home to the UK, which starts in three weeks' time, and I'm still not ready, I'm still not ready, I'm still not ready. But I want to say thank you to everyone that is out there that listens to this podcast, uh, shares it, gives me feedback, says cool stuff. If you have any good to say, just hit me on Instagram and just share it with me and I'll share it with everyone else because I want to kind of grow this into something quite cool. Um, and I want to say thanks to everyone that listened to the show last week when I spoke to Winmasters. It was a show that kind of really kind of elevated what I'm doing, uh, made me feel really proud to interview people and also share it with you guys. And my numbers kind of went through the roof a little bit as well. So hope you will stick around for the next show when I talk to Tristan from Wheelworks. Uh, and I think the whole bike industry kind of needs to look at itself pretty hard. You know, we keep changing standards so that, you know, last year's bike doesn't fit this year's boost wheels. And now we've got super boost yeah, yeah. and presumably we're going to have super mega ultra boost at some point in the future. And, and I think that as an industry, we're just pissing customers off um, that they're, they're getting sick and tired of everything changing every two years. And, and yeah, there's incremental improvement there and there's reasons that these companies want to do it. But I think the bulk of those reasons are just plain and simple marketing, that if it's wider and bigger and stiffer, that we can put some three-letter acronym on it. Okay, peddlers, I've got something to tell you. So imagine if you were thinking about getting a pair of wheels, and you looked online, you found a few that were sexy, some good reviews here and there, cost you a bit of money to get delivered, etc., etc., like, you know, like we all do. What about if you went to someone and said, you know what, we'll build your wheel, we'll help you select everything, we'll build the wheel based on what you're going to use it for, the type of riding you do, the type of tyres you want, the type of hub you want, we'll help you get there. And what about if they also said, for the life of this wheel, we'll guarantee it will work, and if it doesn't, we'll fix it for free, every single time. And then what if they said, for the rim brakes, for example, we'll give you brake pads for free forever because we want you to ride with the best products. Now imagine if someone said that. Well, it turns out there's a company that do just that and it's the guys at Wheelworks that I'm gonna be speaking to. So have a listen to Tristan tell you about why Wheelworks are the place to go to get that I don't know, premium wheel set, the wheel set that's going to be absolutely right for you. And not just a, a throwaway one that you can put in the bin tomorrow if it doesn't work and buy a new set, but a company that will look after that wheel set for you. Someone that you know is going to be there when that wheel breaks down, when it will need some help, when it needs some TLC. Um, but most of the time it probably won't. But the point that they're there, ready and waiting, and they'll sort out delivery for you as well, that's pretty amazing. So. Have a listen to this podcast, listen to Tristan talk about all the detail about what Wheelworks have become, you know, a bit of an establishment in New Zealand. Welcome to, to the interview, the first round of interview with uh, Tristan from Wheelworks. I guess it's kind of the first one, kind of the second one, I guess. It's kind of the second one because I think you lost the tape for the first one. Yeah, so yeah. I had a bit, of a, <laughs> a bit of a computer meltdown, but... Um, you know, you you were happily started. You know, decided to, to do this again. So thanks for taking the time out. That's again, right. You brought you bribed us with some beer, so uh, yeah, yeah. you're you're welcome back in. Always answer. Always uh, fixes things. Beer. So, 
Um, all right, so let's just start off with a, a few quick fire questions to sort of get everyone to know who you are. Um, so what's, the, what's our current location? We're in Lyle Bay, Wellington in New Zealand. And what, what's your home country? Uh, I was born in, in Vancouver and grew up on Vancouver Island. Yeah, yeah. so your home city was Vancouver. Y yeah, yeah. I, I spent most of my time growing up um, like as a young kid in, in the UK, south of the UK, and then uh, all my teenage years on Vancouver Island, which is um, like a reasonably big island off the coast of Vancouver. Yeah. Really good mountain biking. Yeah, yeah, no, I've heard. Yeah. It's epic. Um, uh, why New Zealand? Because uh, uh, I was studying, I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. Uh, I wanted to go on holiday or get away from what I was doing. And um, I thought New Zealand was a very long way from Canada and it was English speaking. So it uh, checked all the boxes. Yeah, yeah. So I bought a, bought a ticket and um, yeah, and ended up sort of working my way down New Zealand. Is it, did it drive on the same side of the road? No, a different side of the road. Okay. All right. It's easy to figure out that, right? Yeah, you just kind of follow all the other cars, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, you're, if you're on your own driving, then you can make a mistake, but as long as you're following everyone else. Um, why Wellington? Uh, I was literally traveling uh, from Auckland down south, uh, you know, traveling south down the island. Um, I ended up getting a job in Wellington and I ended up meeting a girl in Wellington. And uh, one thing led to another and all of a sudden my time in New Zealand was coming to an end. And um, I'd, I'd fallen in love with the girl and I'd fallen in love with Wellington and uh, had some, some big boy decisions to make about my future. <laughs> so I guess, so there, there we can start from there then, I guess. So like you, you're... you're in Wellington, met a girl. Did, were you involved in wheels at that time? No, I was working at a bike shop at that time, um, and I, I would have bought, you know built a few wheels as part of that as a mechanic. But yeah. uh, but no. Is the bike shop still around? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Under uh, different ownership, but yeah, it's still here. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, how did how did you go from from building wheels at the bike shop to then kind of here at the moment building amazing wheels? I um, I finished up with the bike shops uh, after. I had a few years um, working holiday visas and then um, you know working towards permanent residency here. Mm. Um, once I had permanent residency, I, I finished up with the bike shop that I was working for and um, studied mechanical engineering. And um, it was basically, I started Wheelworks as a part-time job while I was studying mechanical engineering. And um, then when I, I finished studying, I had the decision, I guess, of what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to sort of follow a career in, in the engineering trade or whether I wanted to keep going with Wheelworks. And at that point, um, I was really fascinated by, uh, you know, by running a small business and by what I was able to achieve running a small business and made the decision that rather than working for someone else, I'd, um, I'd take the risk and see if I could do it myself. So if you weren't doing this, you'd most likely be doing something in engineering? Yeah, probably something, um, some sort of CAD drawing or something along that sort of lines, yeah. Mm. Okay, so, so like, when you've decided to, to set up this, what, 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 how did you how did you kickstart things? Um, it started pretty organically. Like uh, th there was a couple of companies or a couple of like individuals in the U.S. that were doing a similar sort of thing that were building wheels. Um, at the time, this is going back 13 years now, and at the time, like the internet was not really a thing. Um, certainly, online buying was definitely not a thing. Uh, but I'd seen these couple of guys in the U.S. that were running you know small wheel building operations. And um, I thought, you know, if it can work with a population of 300 and whatever million, surely it can work with a population of 4 million. Um, so, uh, yeah, I started getting into it. started importing um, stuff that you couldn't get locally, you know, really high-end rims that you couldn't buy, really uh, good quality hubs um, in low-spoke count, which was stuff that you just couldn't buy, you know, domestically. Yeah. Uh, started building wheels and selling them, and, um, yeah, and, and word of mouth caught on. So, uh, quite interestingly, when I spoke to the guys from... Chapter two, 
um, Mr. Pride himself. He was from uh, not, not an engineering background, but from an architectural kind of design background, which I think there's some kind of overlap there. Um, and he obviously went into the frame building kind of thing. And you've specifically chosen wheels. Kind of what, why wheels in, in what you wanted to do other than something else to do with, with bikes? The thing that's always fascinating about wheels is that you can take a, a really nice bike and you can put the wrong set of wheels on it and turn it into a really average bike. And then the inverse is true as well. You can take a pretty average kind of middle of the road bike and you can put a really good set of wheels on it and you can just transform it into a really cool, nice riding bike. And, and that, that transformation, you know, both positively and negatively, that really fascinated me. I was really curious about what, what is it? You know, is it just weight that makes that difference? Is it aerodynamics? Is it lateral stiffness? Is it vertical compliance? You know, what are all those aspects that go into to transforming a bike in, in such a drastic way? Uh, and that, that was my fascination with wheels. And um, which one of those was it? Well, it's all of those. It's a, it's a magical, <laughs> yeah, it's a magical mix of all of those sorts of things. But, um, and, and there's no right answer and there's certainly no, um, there's no right answer that fits for all people and all uses, you know, so you're sort of matching up different attributes for different, different riders and then different uses and um, you know by trying to separate those aspects out by measuring things like lateral stiffness or measuring um, vertical stiffness you know we can have a really kind of scientifically backed way of saying well you know what you're feeling here on the bike is translated into these you know f these things that we can measure in the wheel mm. and and when when i was talking to, to mr pride from um chapter two he, he was we were talking about frame building and 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 the way stiffness um, affects kind of like the, the performance of the bike and, and lots of other kind of technical aspects to it as, as well. How, how much do you, do you take the, the consideration of the actual bike um, as part of the ride? Do you know, like say, say if I turned up with, a, with a, an aero super stiff kind of, you know, racing kind of frame and, or I turned up with a um, uh, maybe a slightly lighter kind of one for climbing hills and that kind of stuff, would, would you take the frame itself into consideration when you're thinking about a wheel build yeah absolutely and um, I mean I guess more than the frame we take into account what you want to do with that bike and with those wheels so you know if you turned up on a um, you know a modern carbon race bike era race bike and and wanted to do a lot of racing then that's going to push us in one direction if you showed up on a uh, you know a steel gravel bike and said I want to just sort of you know get on some back roads by myself and go exploring mm -hmm. then that's going to push us in a different direction yeah so the frame itself makes a difference but the the intended use makes a, a massive difference as well okay so we're obviously now sitting in your studio home um, second home for you I guess um, <laughs> how did you get to be in a place like this with the, the staff you've got at the moment yeah so um, I ran wheelworks from home for for a couple of years and then uh, I met a graphic designer named Gary and um, he was riding into his motorbikes, riding into his bikes, and you know we got on really well. And uh, he'd been looking for some space, and I was looking for some space. And we ended up moving into the, the building that's across the road from us here, which is now a brewery. And we moved into that together. And um, I, I was just self-employed by that time, like I you know, didn't have any staff. And um, we cohabited there for a good couple of years, I think. Um, the wheel building was getting busier and busier and it got to the point where I wasn't able to you know both answer the phones and build wheels mm. so um, Gavin came on board and he was working for a bike shop that had uh, that had gone bankrupt and uh, was looking for work and he was looking at other local bike shops and then uh, you know also obviously his, his attention got caught by what what I was doing with wheelworks 
And um, luckily he you know, chose to come and work for me rather than one of those shops. And um, he came on board and that was uh, seven years ago now. Okay. And um, what, 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 as you're kind of growing and you're, kind of, you're getting busier and busier with the, the customers, kind of how, how are you growing the, the, the customers itself? How are you, are they, they repeat customers coming back or are you um, just finding more people nationally to sort of? Word of mouth is our biggest, um, our biggest thing. You know, we, we, put a, we put a lot of effort into having a really easy transaction for the customer and obviously building really good wheels for the customer. And uh, hopefully if, if they've had a nice easy transaction, they've enjoyed working with us, they've enjoyed spending their money with us because it's a huge chunk of money that people spend. Uh, and then they get a, a pair of wheels that you know that transforms their bike and changes the way that it rides. Mm. Um, hopefully, they tell other people, and yeah, yeah. and that that's been the biggest thing for us. When we do a little bit of advertising, a little bit of marketing, but you know nothing significant really. Yeah, yeah. Just word of mouth. Yeah. So is there any kind of tricks to actually encourage more word of mouth? I, I don't think so. I think that <laughs> when you're only as good as your last job, and mm. you know you just have to sort of put put the same amount of effort into every every sale and every transaction. Um, you know, all we do is build wheels, and it, it's it would be quite easy to get complacent about that and just think, oh, look, it's just another unit. You know, we just just like a normal wholesaler would. You know, you pull a box off the shelf and ship it yeah, out yeah. the door, and you know that's not at all what we do. Um, we make an effort that internally we don't use the sales reference number. We use the customer name so that we're always talking about a customer's wheels rather than you know wheel set nine six nine six that I sold yesterday. Mm. Um, and that tries you know try and humanize that that purchase. Um, you know, we're all cyclists ourselves. We all get excited when we order something and it turns up for our bikes. And, you know, we try and um, we try and talk about that, you know, especially when, you know, one of the guys does buy something new and it turns up, you know, we try and talk about that excitement. You know, well, what, what made that purchase exciting? What were you waiting for? Yeah. How's this going to change your bike? And then, you know, what, what can we do to, to make our customers feel the same way when, when they're getting something? And one of the big things we've done in that area is um, we now... If you want to buy some wheels from us, and uh, we'll send you photo updates while we're building your wheels, and little sort of copy, uh, little copy paste sections of text that explain you know what we're doing at each step along the way there to try and you know show the effort that we're putting in, showing the work that we're putting in, and then explaining some of those little mm. things that you you know you wouldn't pick up once the wheel's already built, and you know by the time it's built, every wheel looks the same, whether it's a good one or a bad one. Yeah, yeah. And I remember you mentioning before actually. Um Sometimes it's actually kind of hard to explain the effort that actually goes into building a wheel, the kind of um, all the tools you use, all the calculations you use, everything you do to actually, you know, because I guess some customers just receive a complete wheel, don't actually see kind of what goes on here. Actually being here is quite exciting and interesting and, you know, I'm recording and, and all these kind of stuff. You're probably hearing the podcast, kind of all the stuff going on. And all that stuff is super, super interesting, but how do you actually explain all that? You know, how do you actually show what effort you put in? Well, building a wheel is not that hard. Um, you know, basically anyone with a with a reasonable level of mechanical competence can go and you know. You, there's a few resources. Obviously, there's the internet that you can research. There's some really good eBooks. You know, with a little bit of of, uh, of research, take your time. Anyone can build a, a pretty good wheel. That's not hard. Building a good wheel is difficult. You know, it gets harder if you want to build a really good wheel. The really, really, really difficult thing is building lots of really good wheels to a consistently high quality. That's really challenging. And that's where um, all the boring stuff comes in about process, about tooling, about quality control checks, about you know taking your time, but having a sort of a recipe that gets followed every single time so that every wheel comes out um, 
you know, to a very, very high standard of quality that we know that nothing's going to go wrong. And that, that sort of attitude came from the very early days when I was, I was shipping a lot of wheels around the country and a lot of wheels over to Australia. And, um, you know, back in the old hand-built wheel days, you know, you had to take your wheels back to the guy that built them after you'd run them in for a couple of hundred kilometers to get them, you know, retentioned and retrued. Mm. I mean, the reality is, you know, we can't send a wheel set to a guy in Sydney or Perth and then expect for it to come back after a couple of hundred kilometers use. It's just not practical. Um, so, you know, from, from day zero, really, I had to figure out, well, how can we do all those things to ensure that when the guy receives his wheel set, that it's not going to lose tension. It's not going to go out of true. It's just going to be faultless from day zero. And that's, like I said, that's the boring bits. That's, that's systems and processes and attention to detail and tooling. Mm. So, so what would you say the, the, the main differences between, or the most obvious differences between a good wheel and, you know, one of your wheels? You know, what, what, what would someone look at and, and notice the difference between, you know, uh, off the shelf kind of um, wheel and your wheel? The wheels that are off the shelf are getting better and better, you know, every year. Um, and certainly the ones that get spec'd on new bikes are certainly getting better and better every year. The, I think the big difference for us is that we can personalize a wheel set to, you know, an individual customer and an individual use. And then beyond that, we can build them to such a high quality that, that essentially nothing will go wrong. So we have a lifetime guarantee against broken spokes. And then with all our carbon rims, we have a lifetime guarantee against impact damage. Uh, and with the road winds against uh, any sort of brake track or brake heat sort of damaging. So we can, you know, we can safely uh, and confidently say this wheel set is going to last you the rest of your life or the rest of that bike's life. It, it's not going to break spokes. It's not going to go out of true. The advice you could probably give to someone. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Apparently there's a, there's, a, there's a book out there I've heard about that, that you recommend for someone. A budding, a budding wheel builder, entrepreneur, wheel builder from somewhere <laughs> in the world that wants to, you know, do a, a wheel works kind of job on on the industry. Yeah, there's a guy in the UK named Roger Musson, and he published an ebook quite some time ago, and he runs wheel building classes and stuff in the UK. And his ebook is well worth the five pounds or whatever it costs. If if you want to, if you have any interest in you know either maintaining or building your own wheels, then his book is far and away the, mm. the best resource I've ever read on wheel building. It's got a really good combination of um, practical stuff and also the theoretical stuff. And he explains it in a really good way, but also makes you question why he's explaining it that way or why he wants you to do it that way. And then you can sort of make your own decisions about, well, actually I agree with his method there or I disagree with his method here and I, and I want to do it a different way. And um, certainly when we hired Liam a couple of years ago, um, you know, the first thing we did was printed a copy of that out and, and queried it up to him so that he could read that before he started. And that was, that was required reading. Okay. That's interesting because when you follow like stuff like on YouTube, a wheel build, it's kind of like, this is the process, do this. It's, you never sort of question it, you just sort of do it. So actually when, you, when it comes to building wheels, there's actually no kind of one way to skin a cat kind of thing. Is that, is that kind of how it works? Yeah, correct. There's, um, there's lots and lots of ways of getting to the finished product. Um, and the, the difficulty is that once you get to a finished product, it all looks the same, whether you've got there in a good way or a bad way. But there's plenty of ways to, um, to, to lace the wheel up so that you're not damaging the spokes while you're doing that. You're not bending them you know, over each other too much. Um, there's plenty of ways to do that sort of quickly and efficiently. And then one thing that we really try and stress is that in an ideal wheel build, you've touched each spoke nipple the minimum amount of times to get the wheel tight and, and true. You know, you don't want to sort of continually chasing your tail, continually tightening or loosening and tightening and loosening on the same spoke nipple. That's just sort of building in, a, you know, building in a floor basically. 
So if you can take your time, build it up slowly, but methodically and correct, you can get to a, a final wheel around about the same amount of time, but with fewer adjustments on each spoke nipple. And that's really important. Yeah. I mean, you talk about that methodical kind of process to get to that kind of perfect number. That That's kind of part of your history being in engineering to get to that, that point, right? I love that side of it. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, I don't think I've ever seen you smile as much. <laughs> about numbers and calculations and how excited you are by it. Yeah. And also the, the tools you have out there are kind of your own custom built things, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and like I said, you know, when I started Wheelworks 13 years ago, the the internet wasn't a thing. Uh, you know, we, we, we had dial-up internet here in New Zealand. Um, so th the way I'd learn how to calculate spokes was with these kind of weird chart things and, you know, everyone had a kind of their own little way of doing things. And if you found a, an experienced mechanical wheel builder, he literally had this little pocketbook that had... Um, you know, it, it, handwritten in that rim, Open Pro Hub Altigra, uh, 32 times three, you know, used 294 slash 296. These were a little bit too short. Next time use 296 slash 298. And that was how wheels got built. Uh, you didn't, you know, there's, there's kind of no other way of doing it. Mm. And I love systems and processes. And I thought, there's gotta be a better way than this. This is ridiculous. Um, and I'd study computer science in Canada so I started building like my own spoke calculator and then, you know, the, the calculations are only as good as the numbers that you feed into it. So then my attention turned to like, well, how can I get really accurate, consistent numbers to feed into this, this, this piece of math that's obviously going to turn out the correct answer every time. So that's when I really got involved with the tooling. And that's when, um, you know, the rim's effective, effective rim diameter. So basically where the nipples sit in the rim, that's a super critical measurement for wheel building. And, um, it's often printed on the rim on a sticker and uh, more often than not that sticker is just wildly inaccurate you know, it's yeah. way off so um, I developed a tool that um, that can measure down to a hundredth of a millimeter the uh, the rim's effective diameter and then you know we can plug that into uh, into some software and, and get really accurate spoke lengths mm. um, yeah so when you talk about um, creating your own kind of uh, formulas and calculations and stuff if you I've built a few wheels before, and you kind of, if you want to find the right spoke length and stuff like that, you use this Google, the, you know, a spreadsheet, and you kind of whack all your numbers in, and it gives you an answer, and you kind of do that, and then you kind of go with whatever you, you've been given. Did, did you build your own version of that? Yeah, I built my own version of that, and there's a few reasons behind that, but those ones, either a spreadsheet or, a, you know, an online calculator, they're a bit of a black box, you know, so you're putting numbers into a black box. The formulas to figure out, you know, how long your spokes need to be, you know, you can figure that out yourself. It's just sort of reasonably basic trigonometry. But then um, on the drive side of a rear wheel, each one of those spokes is at about 120 kilograms of force. So if you imagine like a 120 kg rugby player, like a big dude hanging off that little tiny piece of two millimeter spoke wire, and you've got, let's say, 32 big ass dudes hanging off of those spokes. So each one of those drive side spokes stretches about a millimeter while it goes from you know, zero tension up to the, at the wheel's finish tension. To the best of my understanding, none of those spreadsheets or online calculators take that amount of stretch into account. And that amount of stretch will change whether it's a really lightweight spoke or a really thick gauge spoke. Um, so you know, I incorporated that into the calculators that we built. The drive side of a rear wheel is, like I said, it's about 120 kilograms of force, but often the non-drive side is about half of that, about 60 or 70 kilograms of force. So obviously it's going to stretch, you know, half as much. So that's a half a millimeter difference in spoke length. 
well, we're not buying lengths of spoke in two millimeter boxes. You know, we're cutting and rolling each thread down to a tenth of a millimeter. So for us to have a, a half a millimeter error in a spoke calculation is massive, you know? Mm. And so the only way that we can get rid of those uh, is, you know, is developing our own tool to be able to measure and then developing our own software to be able to calculate correctly. Yeah. And then we know, you know, what the finished answer is going to be. And, and that way we know, you know, the thousand odd pairs of wheels we build a year, each and every one of them goes out with the exact length of spoke that's required so that the nipple's not going to break and the spoke's not going to break. Mm. So without kind of revealing too much of your secrets. What, what's your favourite or your best tool, secret tool in the uh, in the workshop that that you've created, crafted, used today that you couldn't live without? Well, can I can I get two? Yeah, yeah, two? yeah, yeah. You can do two. Uh, you don't uh, have to reveal too much about it. You know, <laughs> it is that top secret. Uh, Grimlock is one of my favourites. That's our pneumatic press that we built to basically pre-stress the wheels and. There's a whole bunch of ways of pre-stressing wheels. You know, generally speaking, you have a stack of rims on the floor, and you put the wheel on the floor, and you stand on it. But yeah. that's not consistent. You know, a skinny mechanic and a, and a big mechanic are going to have two different results there. So we built this pneumatic press that does that, and uh, that's made a huge difference to how we we build wheels. And it's cool. It looks cool. It makes cool sounds, and you know, you can crush coke cans in it, which is just awesome. So the basic idea is that the wheels get tensioned and trued um, in, the, in here, and then Gav's gonna take that across to Grimlock. And Grimlock's a pneumatic press that pushes down on the wheel. And there's heaps of different ways of doing the stress relieving process, as it's called, but Grimlock is, uh, is a super consistent way of doing that. So Gav brought the wheel, he's got a little bit of tension on it and it's reasonably true. It's gonna go into Grimlock. Grimlock's gonna make it go out of tension and out of true. It'll go back into the truing stand and brought back up to tension and made true again. Back to Grimlock, back to the truing stand, back to Grimlock, back to the truing stand. When it comes out of Grimlock, as true as when it went into Grimlock and the tension is the same, we know that anything that you as a rider can do to the wheel is far below what that wheel is capable of and what's already been done to it by Grimlock. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, I wanted to make a, a really easy, straightforward way of measuring hubs centered to flange measurements. And I played around with a few ideas and I prototyped this uh, laser cut thing out of someone's old art project. And it was uh, like a painting, you know, that's been laser etched onto a piece of acrylic, this like mountainscape thing. And it was just scrap, this thing wasn't going to work, you know, my idea was it was prototype one, it was... There was no chance of it succeeding, so I just used this old piece of scrap acrylic, cut it up, made it. Well, actually, it turned out it worked pretty damn well. That was, I think, 11 years ago, and that tool is still being used by Liam and Gav with every single wheel that's been built. So someone's art project has been recycled into a tool mm. that gets used you know, multiple times a day. And it's just a little innocuous thing that you know, it should have been approved on years and years ago, but it works just fine, so it's, uh, it keeps going. <laughs> my, my kind of favorite, Maybe I can't reveal this. I'm, I can edit this out if you, if you refuse. <laughs> After building a few wheels and you've kind of got all your kind of like um, all your spokes in, all your nipples kind of set, it's time to like screw everything on, you know. And sometimes it's like a, you can use a screwdriver, just go around, go around, go around, go around, go around. It's probably like a 15, 20 minute job. And you've got one of the, one of the tools that just made me kind of question building wheels. It's the, it's the, the mini, um, screwdriver tool which has like a head on it that sort of when he when the nipple gets to a point it kind of pushes out the other end yeah is that right 
Yeah, it's just a depth setter basically. It sets each and every one of the uh, of the spoke nipples to the same depth. Mm. And um, yeah, like you say, historically you do that with a screwdriver and your eyeball. You know, you sort of wait until you got one thread to go. You know, but the um, the thread pitch of a spoke nipple is 0.45 a millimeter. So if you're half a turn off, you know, that's 0.22, you know, 0.2 of a millimeter off. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going spoke lengths down to 0.1 of a millimeter. So 0.2 is is double what our sort of error tolerance mm. is. So we had to figure out a more accurate way of doing that than just eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, yeah, maybe questioned in world builders again. I have to see <laughs> some of the stuff here. Um, so what what about um, the kind of future of the world building industry? You know, what 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 kind of things do you fear the most and uh, excite you the most about building worlds for the future? That's a deep question. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess the the obvious thing is the change with the worlds. You know, like rims and. Uh, disc brakes and things like that. How much does that impact on your kind of work and your wheel builds and what you consider when you're building? Um, you got two questions there. Can I answer the first one a little bit mm -hmm. first? Uh, you can edit around, I suppose. The the thing, the thing that concerns me about society in general is our way of just heading towards this, everything being disposable and the wheel industry and I think the bike industry in general is is pretty guilty of that. That the life expectancy of uh, any bike part you buy just seems to be getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And wheels are certainly no different from that. And um, you know, we see plenty of carbon wheels that come in for repair that are just quite clearly not designed to last more than 12 or 24 months. And, I, and then the whole thing gets thrown away and they've got these proprietary rims and proprietary spokes and you can't use it to the proprietary hub. So you can't even rebuild that hub onto something you know, better down the line. And I think that's a real, personally, that's a real frustration. And I think from a business point of view, that's a real frustration as well. Uh, and I think the whole, bike industry kind of needs to look at itself pretty hard you know we keep changing standards so that you know last year's bike doesn't fit this year's boost wheels and now we've got super boost yeah, yeah. and presumably we're going to have super mega ultra boost at some point in the future and, and I think that as an industry we're just pissing customers off um, that they're they're getting sick and tired of everything changing every two years and, and yeah there's incremental improvement there and there's reasons that these companies want to do it but I think the bulk of those reasons are just plain and simple marketing that if it's wider and bigger and stiffer that we can put some three letter acronym on it and, and I 10 speed 11 speed or 12 speed yeah know. yeah so uh, we're talking about basically the the throwaway culture that we have yeah you know, stuff that's not meant to last longer than 12 months because it gets actually when you, if you kind of dig around online and find out there's actually I don't know what the term is, but there's a term for things that are made not to last yeah planned obsolescence oh yeah yeah that's it. yeah absolutely yeah, and uh, you know that's across the board. But you know, you look at toasters or kettles or anything like that. You know, dishwashers, whatever it might clothes, be. You know. Clothes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, you wash a, a t-shirt a few times, and all of a sudden it starts looking yeah. pretty raggedy. Yeah, and I, don't, I just don't like that. I, I don't think you know we as a society need to change that. We need to start getting back to the point where we want to buy something that's durable and lasts. And that doesn't have to come at the cost of you know weight or you know whatever it might be. It comes at the cost of dollars sometimes, but it, it doesn't have to come at a, at the expense of some other attribute. So, what brands out there now are doing kind of what you're doing? So, the, the obvious one that that kind of jumps out to me is people like Chris King, you know, creating hubs that are well, not hubs and everything they do build, you know, to, to last a lifetime rather than just a year or two years. Are there any other brands out there kind of doing something similar that you kind of admire and aspire to be yeah um, white industries are another company they're in petaluma california and they're uh, they're also u.s made like chris king but they go about things very very differently they're a very simple um very low maintenance kind of way of doing things and it's um 
you know, we have White Industries hubs that come back for service that would be 20 years old and a modern free hub body and a modern axle will still fit into that 20 year old hub or a, a modern spring from the pool system will still fit into a 20 year old hub. And that, to me, that's brilliant. You know, that means that you can sort of confidently buy that product knowing that, uh, you know, no matter what changes down the line, then most likely you'll be able to get some bits for it and service it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. And um, what do you, what do you kind of fear most? Like, you know, what's, what's the one thing that keeps you up at night when you're, when you're thinking about you know the business and what's next um i don't have too many fears i'm, I'm proud of what we do i'm proud of how we operate we're never going to be the world's biggest wheel building company and that's something that i'm i'm just fine with uh you know i don't really even have any grand ambitions for growth like we, we've got a really good sized team at the moment we've got a really good group of guys the the number of wheels that we build is a is a good manageable level um, and we're able to, you know, to personalize them. We're able to, to, to deliver on time. We're able to do things, a lot of things really, really well. Um, so the, the concept of changing that it doesn't really appeal to me that much. I'm, I'm quite happy where we are. I'm quite happy with what we're, what we're delivering. And what about the, the future then? So what about the, the future of the, like the industry, um, you know, the, the changing of different um, ISOs and different, you know, wheels and the, the braking surfaces and stuff like that, you know, how, do, how does that kind of affect what you kind of do? Or, or is it a bit of a slow change that doesn't really kind of make a huge impact immediately? It definitely does make an impact for us. And I think in road cycling at the moment, you know, we're seeing this, this shift from rim brakes to disc brakes, and that makes obviously a huge difference in the wheels. And then we're also seeing, uh, you know, the gravel and bike packing sort of trends um, starting to become pretty mainstream, you know, those, those types of bikes and that sort of riding has been around since the dawn of time, but it's, uh, it's starting to hit the mainstream now. And, uh, and both of those, you know, change the products that we need to offer and, and to a certain degree how we need to build the wheels. Um, and that, that's cool. I mean, that's exciting. You know, like I think as, as a group of staff, we'd all get pretty bored if we were building the same wheel every day for the same sort of purpose. So having, you know, new stuff coming through, having new uses, having um, the bounds of, of what a wheel needs to put up with being pushed. You know, that's cool. That's, that's interesting and fascinating and, you know, challenges us and makes us improve on things. All right. Yeah, this is our dial hub. Uh, we do a road and a mountain bike and a road disc version of this. Uh, this is the hub we developed a bit over two years ago now. And uh, the idea was because all our wheels get put into boxes and sent away, we wanted something that's, uh, that's really easy for people to own themselves. It doesn't require any special tools and maintenance is super simple on it. So these hubs are uh, they're super straightforward, super simple and very, very modular. So if you wanted something weird and wonderful like a, like a boost hub with a Campeg free hub body, uh, we can do that with the dial hubs. And um, you know what you're seeing here is how simple they come apart. Um, what the internal six pole mechanism looks like, and then uh, what maintenance looks like. So in that sound we just heard, explain the sound. That sound is, um, there's uh, two sets of three pulls. So at any one time, three pulls are engaged and three pulls are not engaged. And uh, as you're sort of backpedaling, it, uh, it alternates between those, those two groupings of three pulls. That's the, the free hub body mechanism uh, engaging that allows you to, to both coast and pedal.
So inside our inventory management system, each rim, the inventory management keeps track of its effective rim diameter, its internal width, its external width, its depth, and it also keeps track of what decals it needs. So when the guys go to build a wheel, they run a uh, little custom piece of computer code, which goes to the inventory management system, requests the wheel set, and then requests all the decals that are needed. It then puts those all together, makes a little PDF out of it, and sends it across to the vinyl cutter here so that they can print the decals out from the vinyl cutter. Are you ready for some uh, quick fire, quick fire answers? Ready. Right. Here we go. Uh, latte or long black? Uh, before lunch, I'd love a little flat white, and then after lunch, it's uh, it's espresso only. All right. Okay. I'm thinking I'm the same. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one already. Pedal hard or go electric? <laughs> <laughs> I love e-bikes. I think that from a societal point of view, uh, they are the best thing that is going to happen to cycling, and mm. I think the more e-bikes out there, the better. Uh, personally, I've got nothing against e-bikes, especially e-mountain bikes and stuff. All my own bikes are what we call them. Do we call them acoustic bikes? Is that what we've settled on? I don't know. Uh, all, all of my bikes are pedal-hard bikes, um, okay. but an e-bike will definitely be in my future. Yeah, e-bikes are really interesting because some people adapt to them and, 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 and love them, and some people kind of think, oh, you know, you're just kind of cheating. But actually, when you see people out there riding them, it's like, especially in New Zealand, the have seen in Auckland and Wellington, it's actually really, really cool, you know, to see, you know. I'm going up a hill and then some, some old deer comes along, you know. <laughs> With a basket on the front, <laughs> yeah, yeah, shopping yeah. in that. I'm sweating and, and trying to do as best as I can. But yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. But <laughs> getting used to it. Um, New Zealand or Canada? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, there's certain parts about my home country and where I grew up that I absolutely love, but I'm super happy here in Wellington. Yeah, yeah. Um, North or South Island? Uh, North Island, only because I live here. Uh, the South Island is definitely cool though, and, uh, and there's some pretty amazing road and mountain biking down there. Mm. Well, you're pretty close to the South Island. You just have to jump on a ferry, right? We are, except the ferries cost a bloody fortune I know, here. I know. Don't tell me about that. <laughs> uh, up or downhill? Uphill. Cool. Uh, sweet or savory? Sweet. Uh, flat or clip pedals? On a mountain bike, clip pedals. Okay, that's interesting. A lot of mountain bikers prefer the flats still as well, right? Like they do. I grew up riding flats and then I went to clips, well, I think when I moved to New Zealand actually. Um, yeah. And I've been tempted to try flats again, but uh, for various reasons I just haven't. Yeah. Mm. Um, roll bars or flat bars? What do you mean by that? On a, like drop bars? or like Yeah, yeah, bike? yeah. Roll bars being like road, road, uh, road drops. drops. So then you've got flat bars being mountain bike, you know. Based on the amount of riding I do, drop bars. Okay. Yeah. Uh, bike touring or bike packing? I'm, do either. I'm a credit card touring kind of guy. I don't like the idea of a big heavy bike that I have to lumber along on. I want something that's sort of fun and. So neither. So well, no credit card touring you can do right. Like you're carrying a minimal amount of stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah, staying in a motel, eating at a restaurant, or you know, uh, takeaway sort of thing. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that that appeals to me more than uh, than carrying everything I require and being self sufficient. Yeah, that, that that appeals to me, but I don't think I can go home. All the way on a credit card. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe someone else's credit card. It'd be a big credit card, card wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. So have you done any bikepacking stuff in New Zealand so far? Yeah, we pretty much every year we go on a like a multi-day sort of thing. It's all credit card and it's all supported with a car every time that we've done it. Um, so we take five guys, uh, five people, and uh, and one drives the car and four of us ride and we just take shifts driving the car. 
and then you're on a you know normal bike so you don't have all your gear on it you know you just carry one bottle you don't have to carry any tubes mm. or anything like that and if you need any help the car is right there behind you the nice. car can shoot off and do its own thing and yeah that's cool so it's, i reckon it's a really good way of, uh, of getting a group of mates together and having fun on your bikes and this is what, gravel or road both we've done a, a few trips um but all of them have involved some level of gravel even before gravel was cool um and i think now that gravel is cool and more of my friends are getting gravel bikes i think those trips will involve more and more gravel and what, what about um road cycling in new zealand what are your thoughts on that as a standalone thing i, I think it's great i think um I don't know why, but New Zealanders are the nicest people they ever meet until they get behind the wheel of a car, and then uh, they can they can be quite difficult to deal with. But New Zealand's got so many little quiet back roads and just some beautiful riding, and it's got a really strong road racing and road riding scene here. Uh, we've got some incredibly talented riders, you know, right, young riders right through to you know guys like Jack Barrow that's been riding in the World Tour for a couple of years. Uh, it's remarkable for such a small country and the riding is, is amazing you know so it's, it's no surprise that we've got a, a strong big group of people that want to get out there and enjoy it there's also a lot of gravel roads a lot of forestry roads so it makes a lot of sense that that gravel scene is uh, is being picked up by New Zealanders and and they're getting into that as a way of, uh, of as traffic volumes increase you know of getting off their their same old roads and getting onto something a little bit different it's Actually, you know, the more I kind of explore, talk to people like, you know, talking to the Kennedy brothers about the kind of trails and the off-road stuff, you about the road stuff and all these other people. It feels like New Zealand's kind of like the most biodiverse culture for, for riding a bike, you know. It would be because, um, you know, where I grew up in Canada, uh, it was mountain biking or nothing, you know. The, the roads there are not great to cycle on. But the amount of mountain biking is just phenomenal. Yeah. So it's rare that you meet a road cyclist, but everyone rides a mountain bike. Uh, whereas here, it's the opposite. You know, here you can you can do anything you want, you know, any sort of bike you want, mm. and um, it's great that here it's quite accepting of that. You know, there's very little as time goes on and the lines between uh, you know a mountain bike, a gravel bike, a gravel bike, and a road bike sort of blur together. There's very little of that. Like, oh, my style of riding is way better than your style of riding. And, you know, people seem to be pretty accepting that you're just out there on a bike with two wheels and set of pedals and maybe even a motor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well final question then. Uh, I'm going to South Island tomorrow. Any any, any routes, roads, uh, you know, bike riding areas you think I should discover? Yeah, that, I think it's the Haas Pass, the one with the, the big long elevated bridge. Okay. That is just phenomenal. It's a, it's a long climb up, but through some just incredibly stunning scenery. And then you get on that, that long elevated bridge and it's, uh, it is, it is world class. It's just amazing. Is this a gravel? gravel no, that's a, that's a road. Uh, one, oh, of, one of the main connecting roads. Um, Untouched World used it for a photo shoot a few years back, and the, the photos that they took are just absolutely stunning. Photo shoot sounds good. <laughs> nice. I'm keeping that one. All right. Well, thanks for joining me for the second time for this interview uh, and taking your time out again in the morning. Uh, really appreciate it and and sharing kind of all the secrets and dark arts of of building a wheel. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming in. Hey guys, me again. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I've got, got a bit of um, bit of a confession to make to Tristan. Um, at the beginning of this part, we kind of said, "Oh, welcome to the second uh, second episode." What actually happened? I haven't actually told him the truth yet. So Tristan, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. Um, but when we interviewed the first time, we sat down and we talked and we did everything. It was really cool. Um, sat down pressed the button to record and a little light appears on my my mic and then we kind of chat and stuff and then 
once it's finished I hit the stop button and the, the mic stops and stops recording and the, the red light goes off but after 40 minutes of talking I um, looked at my, my mic to turn it off and it wasn't even on in the first place I'm really sorry but anyway hopefully the beer that I brought over to apologise and made up for it thanks again for doing the second round of uh, interview with me uh, it seems like every podcast I do I learn something new and different and um, it's pretty cool really interesting um, but again sorry about that but I, I hope you enjoyed the show everyone um, next week we are talking with the Kenny Brothers uh, so if you don't know the Kenny Brothers then you just don't know really I mean just go and google them now if you're into bikepacking uh, trail building uh, and that sort of thing um, these guys are pretty much the, the people you'd go and find the book about because they are uh, phenomenal at what they do uh, and I was really kind of um, really excited to talk to these guys um, don't forget as well to follow my Instagram um, Pedaling Podcast um, it's where I do all my stuff and if you can give me a little review on the podcast app you use then that would be great helps me grow a little bit and uh, helps me get more of the shows kind of out there I've only got three weeks left in New Zealand a flight going from Sydney is on Wednesday uh, the 6th I think um, so that's when it kind of all gets real for me and that's when I start to do stuff on the road uh, such as editing, interviewing and um, you know the bikepacking journey begins so uh, thanks again for listening and for sharing and everything else guys see you later <laughs>